Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Admiral of the Fleet, Sir Provo William Perry Wallace, is perhaps the longest ever serving officer in British naval history. His was a career as distinguished as it was long-running. By his late 90s, he was a household name known throughout the Navy and the country for his role in the War of 1812. On 1st June, Wallace was a lieutenant on HMS Shannon, which captured the American frigate USS Chesapeake in a brief but fierce action, the first such British victory at sea in the War of 1812. Wallace, whose captain had been grievously wounded in the battle, brought his ship and her prize into Halifax, which erupted into jubilant celebration at the British victory. All the more remarkable, as Wallace had been born in that same city, 22 years before, the son of a clerk at the Halifax dockyard. This event, the victory during the war, propelled the young Nova Scotian into a naval career that spanned nearly a century. He reached the prestigious rank Admiral of the Fleet, the highest in the Royal Navy. And throughout his senior years, he refused to enter into retirement, remaining officially in the British Navy until his death, just short of his 101st birthday. This is Season 6, Episode 3, A Century of Service, The Life of Nova Scotian Provo Wallace, Admiral of the Fleet. Today's episode is written by Nicholas Kaiser, Nicholas is a historian and teacher in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia. He has dedicated his career to teaching history and science in a world that sorely needs an understanding of both. And thus, it is no surprise that today we are recommending his book, titled Revenge in the Name of Honor, the Royal Navy's Quest for Vengeance in the Single Ship Actions of the War of 1812. This book was published in 2020 by Helion and Company, and it details the single ship actions that so shocked the Anglo-Canadian world during the War of 1812. 
So Wallace was born on April 12th, 1791, in a proudly British Halifax. The still young city was then the home of the Royal Navy's North American Squadron, which just a decade previously had escorted thousands of loyalists from the former American colonies into Nova Scotia. The new loyalist residents brought their British loyalty and patriotism to the growing Halifax community. And throughout the Napoleonic period, the Navy remained the focal point of Halifax's social, economic, and political life. As the historian Beamish Murdoch later recalled, young boys like himself in Halifax had looked to the Navy with awe, and many aspired to join the service. With good reason. During the French Revolutionary Wars of the 1790s, the British Royal Navy had established itself as the foremost naval power in the world, and the Navy was becoming increasingly attractive as a career route. Wallace's father was the chief clerk under the dockyards commissioner, who used his humble influence with the naval community in Halifax to have his son entered into the muster books of the HMS Oiseau, as an able seaman in 1795. There, his official naval career began, despite the minor inconvenience of Wallace just being four years old. This was, in fact, a common practice in the Royal Navy at the time. Naval captains frequently entered the sons of their friends or relatives into their ship's books as a favor, even when they were too young to join, and so they never did. This imaginary service was useful for young boys hoping to become an officer. Officially, they could rack up some of the sea service necessary to qualify as an apprentice officer while remaining ashore with their families. It wasn't until 1804 that Wallace actually went on board a naval ship for the first time, a small frigate named Cleopatra. Cleopatra was assigned to the North American Squadron to protect British and Nova Scotian shipping against French raids. Not long after joining Cleopatra, Wallace found himself in the heat of action. The small frigate engaged a much larger French frigate in a fierce cannonade, and after two and a half hours, the British crew was overwhelmed and defeated. Wallace, with the rest of his shipmates, were taken prisoner. But just a week later, another British ship came to their rescue. Following the young Haligonians' seasoning in battle, Wallace moved from ship to ship, gaining experience and confidence as a sailor and as an officer, reaching the rank of lieutenant in 1808, just four years after he had first gone to sea. His early service took him throughout the western Atlantic, from the northern waters of Nova Scotia to the sunny Caribbean Sea. He survived defeat in battle, imprisonment, shipwreck, and all of this by the age of 18. Even for the more privileged officers, life in the wartime Royal Navy was fraught with danger and uncertainty. As a profession, though, there were many advantages to serving as a naval officer. For those of humble birth like Wallace, who was not only the son of a clerk, but a colonial one at that, it was one of the few ways to ascend the social ladder in early 19th century Britain. By becoming a lieutenant, 
Wallace became a gentleman. But life as a lieutenant and a gentleman was costly. Eating with his fellow officers in the wardroom, messing, as it was known, necessitated contributing money to expensive food and drink. Yet pay was infrequent when at sea, and even then salaries had not kept up with inflation throughout the previous century. Promotion, too, was risky. Lieutenants in the Royal Navy aspired to command their own ships, but by 1810 it was common knowledge that there were twice as many commanders and captains as there were ships for them to command. Many young commanders ended their careers without a command, ashore on half-pay, in obscurity. With such a shortage of posts, competition for promotion and appointment was fierce. Wallace, whose colonial family carried little weight in London, could not count on family influence to propel his career. Advancement would only come from a great victory in the heat of battle. He had participated in several actions in the Caribbean, but as a junior officer, little word of his contribution reached the Navy's leaders. It was then only a stroke of luck that in 1812 he was assigned to the frigate HMS Shannon, commanded by Captain Philip Broke. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Broke was an unassuming man. He rarely wore the elaborate naval uniforms of the time, preferring a simple frock coat and top hat. Indeed, dressing less elaborately than his own officers. Even with his sword, the red-haired broke did not quite look the part of a naval officer. Shannon, too, would have looked shabby and even a little dirty when compared with most ships in the fleet. As Wallace quickly discovered, however, the shabby appearance of the HMS Shannon and her captain disguised a brutal efficiency. Broke was a master at naval gunnery and had drilled his men to perfection in the quick and accurate use of the ship's great guns. Unusually for the time, he approached gunnery as a scientist and an innovator, but much to Broke's dismay, he had never had the chance to test his ship, his crew, or their training in battle. With the outbreak of war with the United States, he, Wallace, and their fellow officers all hoped that their chance would finally come. After the outbreak of the war with the United States in June of 1812, Broke set out in Shannon with nearly all of the available Royal Navy ships in Halifax in search of the United States Navy, most of which was reportedly operating together under a Commodore John Rogers. The British were eager for battle, hoping for a chance to engage the small American navy before it too was chased from the Atlantic. After weeks of searching, however, Broke never found Rogers. 
By August, the squadron was broken up and each ship went on its separate way, and still the chance at battle with the enemy eluded broke in Wallace on board the Shannon. They encountered one enemy frigate, the USS Essex, which fled, mistaking a captured merchant ship following the Shannon as a second warship. The retreat of the Essex so frustrated Broke and his crew that they then set the captured merchant vessel on fire out of spite. Things went from bad to worse, however, when Shannon returned to Halifax, where they found the town in a state of shock and disbelief. The British frigate HMS Guerriere, which had sailed with Shannon before Broke's squadron was dispersed, had been defeated and burned by the USS Constitution, a heavy American frigate. The British and Haligonians were shocked and outraged, but the situation only deteriorated as two more British frigates were defeated by Constitution and one of her sister ships, the USS United States. It was a humiliating loss for the Royal Navy, and one that broke and Wallace vowed to avenge. In early 1813, the HMS Shannon was sent with a small squadron to blockade the important American port of Boston, one of the principal American naval bases. Inside the port were two frigates, including the USS President, commanded by the same John Rogers who had eluded Broke the previous year. Still hoping for a chance to even the score, Broke sent his heavy ships away and challenged Rogers to a two-on-two fight. This violated his orders to blockade the American port and to avoid battle with the heavy American frigates, which had already defeated three of Britain's ships. But Rogers did not take the bait and took advantage of an evening of foggy weather to escape the harbor. With only two British ships on station to watch the wide opening of the bay, Rogers easily evaded Broke and went on to run amuck throughout the Atlantic, even daring to cruise in British waters. The British Admiralty, alarmed that President had escaped, began to ask questions as to how this failure had happened. The careers and reputations of Broke, Wallace, and their fellow officers were at stake. Remarkably, though, Broke was trying the same trick again. A month following President's escape, another American frigate was ready to sail, the USS Chesapeake. This time, Broke sent away the remaining frigate from the blockade and challenged the Chesapeake to a one-on-one fight with his Shannon. A letter inviting the American captain to fight this bizarre naval duel was sent ashore with a local fisherman, but the letter never arrived. In fact... The Chesapeake was already on its way. You see, the Chesapeake's captain, James Lawrence, had already weighed anchor to engage the lone British frigate remaining off of Boston's shores. As the ships closed, Wallace took command of the guns on the quarter deck, from which the ship was steered and commanded. As the men prepared for battle, Wallace stopped the ship's gunner, and gave him a pocket watch, asking him to bring it to his father in Halifax should he fall in action. Then, he and his gun crews waited, ready and silent, as the two ships closed. 
At 5.50 p.m., Wallace ordered his guns to open fire, and the two ships erupted in noise and smoke as the great guns smashed away at each other. The cannonade was quick but brutal as the metal shot ripped apart the wooden hulls of each ship, filling the air with thick smoke, deadly iron shot, and massive flying splinters. But the American crew suffered most, as Shannon's gun crews were brutally efficient, and just ten minutes after the start of the action, Broke led a boarding party onto the Chesapeake, quickly driving the American crew from her decks, and Shannon's second-in-command, Lieutenant Watt, hauled down the American flag. Wallace remained in command of Shannon while Broke and Watt were on board the Chesapeake. But Wallace was ready to intervene if the tide of battle turned against his fellow officers, and to his alarm, one of his crewmen indeed spotted someone on the Chesapeake starting to rehoist the American flag. Now, in actuality, this was Lieutenant Watt, who, in the confusion, had mistook the similarly colored American flag for the British flag. But to the gun crews on the Shannon, it looked like an enemy officer was trying to retake the ship. Wallace himself only realized what was happening at the last moment as one of the great guns fired, and to his horror, his friend and comrade Watt was cut down by his own guns. Folks, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So, if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page, Spotify, and on Apple Podcast, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy, and thank you to all who have donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Incredibly, it was not just Watt who had been killed, but Broke had suffered a head wound from a cutlass while boarding the Chesapeake. He too eventually succumbed to his wounds. Thus, when the smoke cleared, Wallace found himself in command of both ships. Now, both frigates were badly damaged, crowded with the dead and wounded, and the surviving Shannon had to keep some 200 American prisoners under guard. It was a staggering degree of responsibility for a man barely turned 22. Normally, the return voyage would have only taken a day, but so damaged and short on hands were the two frigates that the voyage took nearly a week. Wallace, exhausted and so concerned about the safety of the two ships under his command, scarcely slept or even changed his clothes until he reached Halifax the morning of June 6. It was a Sunday morning, and as the two ships entered the harbor, much of the town flocked from their church services to cheer the British frigate and her prize. The town erupted into jubilant celebrations, which quickly infected the public mood back in Britain. 
In the aftermath, Wallace was promoted to commander of a small sloop of war and continued in command throughout the rest of the war itself. When the war ended, Wallace's command ended, and he went ashore along with a staggering 90% of all British naval officers, all on half pay, and all now without a job. Still, Wallace was later promoted further to captain, and in 1824 given command of a small frigate, HMS Neiman. Over the next two decades, he commanded several warships in the Mediterranean before being appointed a naval aide-de-camp to Queen Victoria herself, and finally, in 1851, to Rear Admiral, later serving as the commander-in-chief of the Royal Navy Squadron in the South Atlantic. There, the Nova Scotian took command of the effort to suppress the Brazilian slave trade. It wasn't until he reached the age of 70 that he returned to shore for good. Now, by the time he returned to shore for good, the Royal Navy had changed beyond all recognition from the one Wallace joined in 1791. Wood and sail were quickly giving way to iron and steam. The great sea battles had halted, and another would not be fought until the 20th century. An era had ended, yet Wallace remained for decades more in semi-retirement, watching his navy and his world change around him. While his seagoing service had ended, Wallace never actually retired. In the middle of the 19th century, the British Navy decided to allow all captains from the Napoleonic Wars to remain on the active list and so continue to draw full salaries as long as they wished. It had been intended to help older captains in retirement, but young Wallace's brief command of the HMS Shannon at age 22 meant he qualified. He continued to climb the ranks of the Navy in 1860, receiving a knighthood, and in 1877 became the senior admiral in the Navy, earning the ceremonial but prestigious rank Admiral of the Fleet. By this time, though, he was approaching 90. He frequently entertained visitors at his home in England, including many young naval officers eager to speak to the bearded naval hero from the time of Nelson, who himself had become a living relic of a bygone era. Wallace remained in good health even by his late 90s, and his remaining in the active officer list was actually holding up promotion places for dozens of officers below him. The Admiralty urged him to voluntarily retire, warning that he was liable to be called to service until he did so. But Wallace refused, informing the Admiralty that he would be happy to do so, serve, stating that while he had no experience sailing the Navy's new steam-powered battleships, he was willing to learn. Wallace passed away just before his 101st birthday the oldest individual to hold his rank in the Royal Navy. His funeral was marked by a full display of Royal Navy honors, and well-wishers on both sides of the Atlantic paid their respects, including the Queen herself. Canada remembered the Halifax native, and today the main street of Halifax Naval Dockyard, home of the Royal Canadian Navy's Atlantic Fleet, 
is named in his honor. A fitting tribute, as it was in that same dockyard that his father had first secured a naval career for his young boy. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.